2,999, 2,000. Hey, hey, Sam. Uh, oh, what's up, guys? What's, I didn't see what's going on? Yeah, what are you doing, Sam? Oh, uh, yeah, I was just doing some uh, bicep curls before we got started here. Oh, yeah? 2,000 of them? Yeah, I did 2,000 uh, with the old bed frame. Oh, wow. Right with before the... we recorded the podcast, huh? Well, yeah, I just wanted to get just wanted to get jacked before we started recording. I saw my saw my mattress there. I was like, I'm gonna fucking curl the shit out of this. And before I knew it, I was doing two thousand. Wait, wow. so you did you hit record before you started, and you you have audio of yourself doing two thousand curls? Yeah, it's kind of a blur. Or did you take a break and then hit record? Uh, you know, who knew. <laughs> I don't keep track of these things that well. You sound like a fucking nerd. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know, maybe as a bonus episode, we could post the audio of Sam doing 2,000 curls uh, one day. That is pretty impressive, though, 2,000. Yeah, I think our listeners would love to hear that. Yeah, I mean, they could come. They could just check out the guns anytime they want, man. I'm telling you, ever since I started my regimen, I'm just shredded. Oh, yeah? Yeah, you've been feeling good. I've been feeling really good. The other day, I'm driving down the street. I uh, pop one of my tires. I just carried my car oh, home. Man. You oh, just wow. carried oh, wow. your car home. I what? just carried it home. I don't believe you. No, I did. I seriously, it was like it was like it was nothing. I mean, when I got home, did I have just crazy hemorrhoids? Yes, but I talked to my doctor. It's not a big deal. Sounds kind of like a big deal, but that's just me. No. I mean, yeah, I, I guess I'm kind of surprised to hear it, but, you know, it sounds pretty cool, I guess. Uh, if you can just carry your car home, um, I guess that's a good thing. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm feeling pretty good. Uh, sure, I have some occasional bouts of diarrhea and vomiting, and sure, it's red in color sometimes, but I've been drinking a lot of cherry slushies, so I feel like I'm fine. Oh. Well, yeah, that, that explains it. That's nothing to worry about. Yeah, I mean, it seems worth it if you can... Do 2,000 fucking curls. I would recommend... your car. Yeah. I would recommend anyone I know get on HGH. Just try it. You're going to like the way you look. I guarantee it. All right. Well, welcome to One Game at a Time, everybody. Uh, This is the podcast where we tell the story of a single game from baseball's history. I'm Warner, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-hosts, Sam and Charlie. Hello. Hello. How are you guys doing today? Well, I'm sorry about my mic quality, everybody. Yeah, hopefully it's not too bad. Um, I'm sorry just about my voice, just in general. (laughs) I'm not sorry for anything, actually. I'm (laughs) feeling good good. today. I'm glad there's one person on the podcast who's not sorry. (laughs) At least one of us every day, every episode has to be on our game. So, you know, we're batting 300. Well... Should we get into this game? I say yeah. let's do it. Let's cut the bullshit and just get into the fucking game. Whoa. I mean, that's... Well, Sam. I mean, sorry. I just get really, like, angry sometimes lately. Well, that's all right. People, sometimes people get angry, and, yeah, you're passionate about the show. I, it's, it's all right. It's all right. Don't fucking patronize me! Oh, wow. Okay. All right. Well. Okay. Sorry. Let me sorry? Just chill out. Let's, how about we just get into the game? Does that sound good, Sam? Does that sound okay to <laughs> yeah, you? Yeah, 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 yeah. The Battle of the Bay was underway. It was October 17th, and Candlestick Park in San Francisco, California, was preparing for Game 3 of the 1989 World Series. It was the first World Series game in the city since 1962, and the Giants were taking on their crosstown companions, the Oakland A's. With interleague play still eight years away, 
This World Series was the first time these two fan bases from opposite sides of the bay had ever filled the same stadium. In fact, the last time the Giants had even faced the Athletics was in 1913, when neither of them were located in California, with the two teams hailing from New York and Philadelphia, respectively. That's pretty crazy. That's a long time. That's, that's a long time. From 1913 to 1989. And yeah, yeah not even in California. That's what's crazy about the pre, because now these teams play, now the Giants and Athletics play each other every year. Cubs and White Sox play each other every year. Mets, Yankees play each other every year. But back before interleague play, these teams would be a dozen miles apart, even less, and they would never play each other. Yeah, you'd think that they would just to cut down on some of the travel <laughs> even for the teams. Yeah, or I like an exhibition. I mean, they might have done exhibitions every once in a while. I don't know. Sure, but, but nothing that was like an actual well, real. Well, maybe maybe they did play matter. each other in the spring. I guess we don't know that. Yeah, but I mean, according to what I read on Wikipedia, but yeah. <laughs> Prior to the 1989 World Series, any talk of a rivalry between these two teams was more of an offhanded joke than something to be taken seriously. But when October rolled around and the sister cities prepared for postseason baseball things were beginning to change. The rivalry, which would come to be known as the Bay Bridge Series, wasn't getting off to a great start for San Francisco. They had dropped the first two games of the World Series in Oakland, scoring only a single run, courtesy of a Rob Thompson sack fly. The A's, meanwhile, had seen their ace and hometown hero, Dave Stewart, pitch a complete game shutout in Game 1, then Mike Moore goes seven innings while only allowing one run in Game 2. I miss complete game shutouts. I mean, we still see him, but they're not as often. Well, in the American League Championship Series, the A's had only dropped a single game to the Toronto Blue Jays, due in large part to the stellar performances of Stewart and Moore, as well as an A's bullpen that included future Hall of Famer Dennis Eckersley. The Eck. Hall of Fame mustache as well. Oh, yeah. We're talking amazing mustache. What is right it with there. the A's and Hall of Fame closers with amazing mustaches? Raleigh Fingers, Dennis Eckersley. They just know. They just they know how to wrap those guys up. We're waiting on the third one to complete the trilogy. It's going to be me in a couple of years. Oh, really? Just watch. Yep, it's going to be me. Do you want to get on my <laughs> regiment, maybe? That might help you get to the league. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, maybe I should. get does, on his regiment. Does that regiment, does it help with mustache growth? I mean, obviously, I've got a beard, but I don't have a mustache of their level. Yeah, so. it helps grow all your hormones. Human oh, growth oh. hormones. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. I got mustaches coming out of my mustache. Oh, dear. <laughs> well, to say the ace pitching staff was dominant would be an understatement, but that was only half of the equation. On the other side of the ball came a lineup that could hit. Led by the Man of Steel, Ricky Henderson, Bash Brothers, Jose Canseco, and Mark McGuire, and slugger Dave Parker, the A's had racked up 26 runs in the ALCS and had kept the party going into the World Series, scoring 10 runs in the first two games. Can I ask you guys a question? What's up? This is our second A's game, but this is the one where we're like really focusing on them. Do you guys prefer to call them the A's or the Athletics? Um, both. I don't know. I just don't know if you guys have like a prep. Which one you think? Which one's cooler? You know, like. I like their little logo with the elephant. That is a fun logo. It's like one of the least used logos. Like, how how many people know the A is like use an elephant? I don't know. But how it's many cool. people know? People how many like up. casual casual fans know that the A's are the Athletics? Um, I would imagine they know they're the Athletics. I feel yeah. like they're more known as the A's than as the Athletics. 
they're more known as the A's, but I think if you're saying casual fan is in someone that act like watches even a little bit of baseball. I mean, what is a casual a fan, I guess? I guess I don't know what like what is a casual fan? Well, Warner's a casual fan, so Oh yeah. Well guess what? I know they have an elephant logo, so I'm oh, not a casual I guess you fan. Can't be then. Yeah. Hey, if you're true. a casual fan listening to the podcast, tweet us at Ogatpod. Hashtag I know who the A's are and let us know if you know what the A's stands for. Because if they're listening and didn't know after us talking about it, I would be a little concerned. Yeah, but, but honor uh, system of if you knew before we said what it was. I see, I see. I think casual versus hardcore baseball fan, who cares? Just baseball fans are cool. That's what I'm going to say. You think all baseball fans are cool? Um, I'm going to say that baseball fans that aren't shitty people are cool um, and just kind of leave it there. Because I know what you're trying to do. What am I trying to do? You're trying to entrap me. No. I think that's entrapment. No. I don't think that's entrapment. But it's. I know what you're trying to do. Oh, no. All baseball fans that are cool people that aren't shitty people are cool. So all cool people are cool people is what you're saying? Yeah, by no, 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 only definition. Cool, by your cool, definition of cool? Yeah. Cool people that aren't shitty people. Are cool, Can shitty people know? be cool people? I mean, it's like the bad boy syndrome, you know? <laughs> Sometimes you got to be bad to be cool. Sometimes you got to be bad right. to be cool. Well, w- wise words from Charlie. Sometimes you got to be bad to be cool. But let's get back into this game. <laughs> With the World Series moving out of the Coliseum and across the bay to Candlestick Park, the A's would be without their DH Dave Parker and up against a Giants team that hadn't dropped a single game in their home ballpark during the National League Championship Series. The Giants lineup, while not as star-studded, did contain the 1989 National League MVP Kevin Mitchell, who had led the league in home runs and RBIs, and the 25-year-old Will Clark, who led the league in runs scored and drove in 111 runs, good enough for second in National League MVP voting behind his teammate. Scheduled to start Game 3 was Bob Welch for the A's and Don Robinson for the Giants, but as broadcasters Al Michaels and Tim McCarver recapped Game 2, tragedy struck. fails to get Dave Parker at second base, so the Oakland A's take... take I'll tell you what, we're having a With minutes to go before the first pitch, the Loma Prieta earthquake ripped through the Bay Area, cutting off the broadcast and putting all the festivities on hold. It was the first major earthquake in the United States to ever be broadcasted on live television. After a minute of dead air, Al Michaels' voice came back amidst the screams of confusion and panic that rang out from Candlestick Park. I can't imagine being in a stadium, especially them them up in the booth. That's got to be pretty freaky. Yeah, I've never experienced an earthquake myself, but I can't imagine, especially being in a place, the game hadn't started yet, so it wasn't that packed, but being in a place that, with that many people and with that much like infrastructure around you would be pretty scary, just wondering if it was all going to topple down. While the stadium had seen structural damage and, as umpire Al Clark put it, the field turned into an actual water wall as the earth beneath it swelled, no one within Candlestick Park was hurt as the stadium that could hold 62,000 people was less than half full at the time. What is a water wall? Like, the grass, apparently, 
the field was literally moving up and down so much that it looked like a wall of water. Like That's it crazy. looked like a wave crashing on the field. That's what I took from it. Yeah, were they on I mean, the field at that point? I mean, holy some shit. Some people were. Some people were in the clubhouse. Um, yeah, obviously Al Clark was on the field. Guys were in the dugouts. Um, I can't remember who now, but I read that somebody was in the dugout, and when they knew that the earthquake was started, they immediately ran out onto the field because they felt it was the safest place to be because there's nothing above you, which right. kind of makes sense. Um yeah, it was, um, people were all over the place just trying to get ready for the game. And yeah, this just comes out of nowhere. And that, okay, yeah, the stadium was less than half full. Yeah, stadium was less than, less than half full, um, which I think, you know, people seem to think was uh, was good. Uh, there could have been a lot, there could have been more injuries, um, at least within the ballpark, which could have been pretty bad. But it seemed like the ballpark was okay for the most part. But the same couldn't be said for the rest of Oakland and San Francisco, where the earthquake caused upwards of $11.5 billion in today's money in damages, and 63 people were killed, while another 3,757 were injured. I mean, I will say this, like, going into this game, I knew there was an earthquake before the game. I was like, oh, that's wacky. I did not, I didn't, this happened, you know, six years before I was born. I didn't know, like, how serious it was, like. All these people injured, killed, displaced, like, it really makes you think, like, man, that is just a horrible tragedy that I, I, I feel like I didn't really even know about that much. Yeah, I mean, I definitely knew, hey, there was an earthquake before game three, but I feel like it kind of, in a way, in a, it becomes half a footnote, half the reason people talk about the series, but I don't think people talk a lot about what happened after the earthquake in San Francisco, in Oakland, and why it was such a big deal um, that, especially with these two teams about to play a World Series game, and then this happens. Yeah, and it was absolutely wild that it was broadcast on TV yeah. for an event as big as the World Series. It wasn't uh, just a news broadcast or something with local people watching. Like Everybody in the country was watching this. It's wild that, I mean, what are the chances that it's happening in the series, the first series ever, with the two teams in the Bay Area? Whereas, like, right, this earthquake would be national news no matter what. And if it had happened, even if the World Series was, you know, Boston versus the Boston versus the Reds, like, two teams that had nothing to do with this, this would be national news. And if it was even just one of these teams, then it would be, oh, my God, this happened during the the World Series were one of these seasons. But it's both of the Bay Area teams. It's the two teams that are affected by it the most are playing in the area. It's crazy. Well, experts credited the timing of the World Series as a lucky break, actually, as many people had left work early or stayed late to watch the game, resulting in less people on the roads and bridges that saw most of the damage. I mean, that picture, I saw the picture of the bridge what over the bay or whatever that's actually... Yeah, the broken in half. Bridge. Like, yeah. Yeah. That's scary sight. Well, at the end of it all, after the shaking had subsided, MLB commissioner Faye Vincent decided to postpone the game initially for five days, but that was later extended another five, setting the official start of game three for ten days later on October twenty seventh. It was and still is the longest delay between games in World Series history. I find it crazy that they even were able to play ten days later. When you consider the damages. Yeah, 
Um, they were looking, I know. So one thing too is obviously again, not just San Francisco and playing games in candlestick, but thinking about Oakland where there was a lot of damage as well and thinking about the Coliseum and you now have to try to figure out, well, do we have to go play in a neutral site somewhere? I was reading that they were talking to other stadiums across the country, trying to figure out if they could maybe go play the games there. Um, I mean, it's so much that they had to figure out that it is very impressive that 10 days later, they were able to put this game back on. Yeah. It was probably really surreal, too, for any of the fans, and I'm sure most of them were there or on their way there yeah. 10 days prior, and now they're back in the same spot, probably thinking, holy fuck, like, let's just get this game started this time. Yeah, yeah. Well, when the A's and Giants finally returned to Candlestick Park, Managers Tony LaRussa and Roger Craig had made some changes, most notably going back to their Game 1 starters Dave Stewart and Scott Geraltz, who are now on almost two weeks rest. Um, also, and I just want to talk about Dave Stewart as well. As we mentioned, uh, he was from Oakland, so he, throughout his whole career, his whole life really, uh, he cared a lot about the city. And I read a story that after the earthquake, before Game 3, like most players, he went home and... Uh, it took him what should normally have only taken him maybe a half hour, 45 minutes to get home, ended up taking him six hours because of the bridge collapses. So they had to go all the way around the bay. Uh, but I was reading that once he finally got home, he made sure his family was okay. And then at like two in the morning, he went back out and started bringing coffee and stuff to firefighters and relief workers who were helping people in Oakland. And I just think that's so impressive that this World Series you know, top of his game pitcher who the first thing on his mind is, Hey, how can I help out my city? Uh, I think that's super yeah, cool. That's Just amazing. hearing about that. That was, that was really awesome to read about. That's being cool by being good. <laughs> yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. The A's have a lot of Daves. <laughs> Dave Stewart, they do. They... Dave Parker, Dave Henderson. They got a few Hendersons. A lot of Hendersons. Yeah. <laughs> they have a few Hendersons well, a, as well. A few. Well, the Giants starter Scott Geralds was 1-1 one one in the postseason with a 6.32 ERA and was facing off against the greatest leadoff hitter of all time, Ricky Henderson. Henderson had led the league in steals, runs, walks, and had been named the ALCS MVP. Henderson started the game out by taking the third pitch of his at-bat to Giants shortstop Matt Williams for the first out. And baseball is back. And baseball is back, just like that. I think an interesting storyline here with Ricky Henderson is that he's an Oakland legend. I think he's probably the greatest Oakland A's player of all time. And what's interesting is that he obviously started his career with the A's. He was there for like six, seven seasons. Then he went to the Yankees and now he's just been, he's just come back to Oakland. This was his first year back with Oakland after going to the Yankees for a while. And with everything like A's fans are going through right now, like they love Ricky. I bet it's really great to like see him leaving this game off. Yeah. It probably feels good just to have the game started finally, but for Ricky to be doing <laughs> it, like you said, Oakland legend, he's back. Baseball's back. That's a good moment. Following Ricky was the third baseman, Carney Lansford. Carney. Lansford, yeah, Lansford had batted 336 in 1989, losing out on the batting title to Kirby Puckett by just three points. Carney Kirby. and Kirby. 
Kirby. Carney and Kirby, two names. That sounds like a that sounds like a t like a I could see that being like an eighties cop yeah. procedural movie <laughs> or a show TV show. Coming you know, to Carney screen, and Kirby. Summer of nineteen eighty nine. Carney and Kirby. Two Oakland cops up yeah. to no good. <laughs> I don't know why they're cops that are up to no good, but. <laughs> yeah, that's not really a good sign. I, I think of it more of as like a lighter, feel-good, like action comedy. Carney and Kirby. Which one is two <laughs> weeks away from retirement? Hmm. I don't know which one of these was, guys was older at the time, yeah, but <laughs> probably Kirby. Sure, we'll say Kirby. <laughs> one of them plays by the book. The other is Kirby Puckett. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's just actually Kirby Puckett and a cop named Carney. Kirby Puckett's like, I'm not a cop, but the cop is like, that's okay. We need your amazing batting skills anyway. <laughs> well, Lansford proved he still had it, though, as he took Garrett's first pitch to center for a base hit. Batting third was Jose Canseco. Canseco had been named the 1988 MVP after leading the league in home runs, RBIs, and slugging, and became the very first member of the 4040 club after predicting he would do so in April of 1988. We talked about in the previous episode when we were talking about Alfonso Soriano that we love 4040 Club guys. He's the originator of the 4040 Club, the first guy to ever do it. Yep. I think it was 1989. Baseball has been around for like 100 years, if not longer. He's the first person to ever have 40 homers and 40 steals in a season. Yeah, I mean, that's a great accomplishment. We love 4040 guys, but unfortunately, I've got to put Conseco in the OGAT Hall of Shame. Oh, no. Yep, unfortunately, he's been convicted of domestic abuse. And we got to be consistent here, 40-40 or not, he's a Hall of Shamer. I yeah, mean, Canseco is a Hall of Shamer, without a doubt. He did shoot um, his own finger off. He he did, but that's not, he he's not in the Hall of Shame because he shot his own finger off. No. I mean, he's, he, he's in the shame because he hit his wife. He was which is, drug uh, running pretty, across the Mexican border at one point. I, who cares? Just don't hit Yeah, I don't wife. care about that. Yeah, just Ogat, Hall of Shamer. But in the 1989 World Series, Canseco had been struggling at the plate and was currently riding an 0-for-23 streak that went back to the 1988 World Series against the Dodgers, where he, where he had hit a grand slam in Game 1, then been completely shut down since. That's crazy that you go from grand slam to... Also, grand slam in your first World Series yeah. at bat, too. And, and then, then you're just completely quiet. That's also overshadowed because it's the same game that Kirk Gibson hits the walk-off home run. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I'm sure had the A's won that game, it might we might remember it more for the first, I'm pretty sure, first inning grand slam from Jose. But uh, yeah, Kirk Gibson shows up and fist pumps his way to our hearts. <laughs> the first two pitches of the at-bat came inside on Canseco, with the second almost drilling him in the head leaving him furious and walking back towards the mound, but being held back by catcher Terry Kennedy and crew chief Vic Voltaggio. Ooh, I know this all too well. Yeah, he was kinda, you were kind of reminding me of Canseco's moment here earlier today. What the fuck did you say, Charlie? Uh, n- nothing. <laughs> uh, yeah, so obviously there's, uh, there's another thing that uh, the 4040 Club, he's famous for that. But there's another thing he is arguably much more famous for that, uh, yeah, Sam, you may or may not be experiencing right now. Uh, there, Let's just say there's a reason they called Jose Canseco the chemist. <laughs> 
On the list of the most roided out men in the history of professional sports, Jose Canseco is a top five with oh, yeah. a bullet. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. And again, PDs, fine. Go ahead. Just yeah, don't, don't be your wife, please. Just exactly. That's about all it takes to stay out of the one game at a time hall of shame. Uh, unless you're Mookie Betts and you might eventually gamble on baseball. Oh, there are other ways but, to get in the Hall of Shame, like Kurt Schilling. Fuck you, Kurt yeah, Schilling. That's true. Oh, that's true. That's true. But did we That's a sure I forgot we way. put him in the Yeah, that's a surefire way. Just don't be a rotten human being. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, once the benches settled and the at bat continued, Canseco hit a grounder through the hole on the left side, snapping his hitless streak. Following Canseco was his brother in Bashtum, Mark McGuire. The young first baseman had drilled 33 home runs on the year, but hadn't had as much success in the postseason, hitting only one home run thus far. On the third pitch of the at-bat, he grounded to short for the second out, while Lansford and Kinsenko each advanced to base. It is wild to see young Mark McGuire here before, I mean, I don't know if he's on Roy's yet or not, but like, before him just becoming like, I mean, late Big Mac, like 1998 Mark McGuire looks like the thing from Fantastic Four. <laughs> <laughs> this guy looks like a normal human being. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Late career I Mac mean, could eat this Mac for breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> Why does the larger Mac not simply eat the smaller <laughs> Mac? <laughs> well, tasked with driving the runners in was the center fielder, Dave Henderson. Henderson was 0 for 6 in the World Series, but he took Geralt's second pitch deep to right. In the air to right field and deep, and Sheridan goes back, and it's off the top of the fence, and in play, in play, two runs will score, and Henderson has a double. Dave saying wasn't it a home run, but the right field umpire, Paul Runke, was down the line and there to call it. Said it hit the top of the fence and bounces It was A's two, Giants zero, on a ball that was mere inches away from being called a home run. This is one of those weird playing in a football stadium moments, which we'll talk about more. But the wall out there is just like a fence they put out there arbitrarily. So I wonder how consistent they are when they take it apart and then put it back that it's exactly in the same spot. Because this ball hit literally off the top of the wall. Could have been a home run if that fence was in two more inches. I do. I do wonder how they put the fence up. I mean. Don't you think, though, they at least have something that's like holes in the ground that they put it in? And then when they put in the, you know, whatever, football state, like, do they cover that? I don't know. Because it seems crazy that they would just arbitrarily be like, ah, this looks good. We'll yeah, put the I mean, fence here. I'm sure they've I don't got know. a way to make it as consistent as they can. I just doubt that it's perfectly. There's got to be a margin of error by a few inches right. that had it been a few inches in, Dave Henderson would have hit a three run homer. A little fun fact about Dave Henderson is that he actually spent 15 games with the San Francisco Giants in 1987. Interesting. He's also from uh, Merced, Merced, California, which is kind of near the Bay Area. So he's another kind of hometown guy. That's fun. I'm sure he'll take two runs. Yeah, (laughs) two runs is better than none. Well, with a runner on second, Terry Steinbach was next, but he grounded to third for the third out. Leading off for the Giants was center fielder Brett Butler, who found himself up against Dave Stewart. Stewart had gone 21-9 with a 3.32 ERA and was currently 3-0 in the postseason with a 1.8 ERA. He got to work quickly 
and got Butler to pop it up to left for the first out. Robbie Thompson, the only giant with an RBI in the World Series, oh, was God. next. Yeah. <laughs> but he struck out swinging on four pitches. And that one RBI was on a sack fly. On a sack fly. Not even a hit. <laughs> nope. Then it was Will Clark, who had batted three thirty-three in the regular season, only three points behind Tony Gwynn for the batting title, but he too would go down swinging for the third out of the inning. Well, in the first inning of World Series baseball at Candlestick Park in 27 years, the A's had plated two runs and the Giants had gone down in order. Tony Phillips let off the second, but struck out on six pitches. Then it was Walt Weiss, the 1988 Rookie of the Year. While he'd only hit three home runs all year, Weiss had homered off Geralt's in Game 1, but couldn't do it again as he flied out to center. Do you think if Walt Weiss played today, he'd get a lot of like Breaking Bad references? <laughs> I mean, probably, because that's what I was thinking of. <laughs> I, I was had not it. made that connection somehow. It's really cool that the A's had three rookies, rookie in a year's, rookies in a of the year? Rookie Ro- of the years or rookies of the year? That's the question. I think it's one of those like... Like surgeon, chiefs of staff. Roy's. Yeah, like surgeons, general. Anyways, pretty cool that they had three in a row from yeah, three 86 Roy's in a row. to 88. Three Roy's in a row. I think the Dodgers did that at some point too. They might have like four. Okay, 1979, Dodger Rick Sutcliffe. 1980, Dodger Steve Howe or Steve Howie. I'm not entirely I sure. I think it's just, I think it's Ho actually. Okay, 1981. Maybe. I'm probably wrong. <laughs> Fernando Mania, 1981. <laughs> Fernando Valenzuela, Fernando Mania right there. 1982, Steve Sachs. So that's one, two, three, four in a row. Then, 10 years later, 1992, Eric Karos. 1993, Mike Piazza. 1994, Raul Mondesi. 1995, Hideo Nomo. 1996, Todd Hollinsworth. Oh, wow. Wow. That's five in a row. The Dodgers, uh, they've had a the, lot of Roy's. They've had a ton of rookies of the year. Yeah, and then they had awesome. Seeger and Bellinger in 16 and 17. Yeah, and then Walker Bueller, I think, placed third. So I think people thought, oh, maybe they could do three in a row. And didn't Jock um, almost but... Jock almost got rookie of the year, didn't he? Probably. I think he was yeah, like just I behind. feel like the Dodgers have always had just very good young players. I mean, this is very clear from what Sam just listed. <laughs> Another California team. Wow, franchises with the most rookies of the year. Okay, this says rookies of the year. Dodgers have 18. Second place is the Yankees with nine. Wow. wow. I don't know. I'm not a mathematician, but I think that's double. Hold on. Let me crunch some numbers. Uh, Yeah, no, Sam is correct. That is double. The Dodgers have double the rookies of the year. That still sounds weird. <laughs> All right, all right. Well, let's get back into it. After Weiss came the pitcher, Stewart's. It was the first time all season he'd appeared at the plate, and he was hoping to break an 0-for-67 streak for American League pitchers in the World Series. But on the third pitch of the at-bat, he made it 0-for-68 as he struck out looking. Yawn. (laughs) 0-for-68. Wait, hold on. This is news to me. Charlie doesn't like pitchers batting? (laughs) This is just awful. 0 for 68 in the World Series, the biggest stage. That's all I'm going to (laughs) say. Well, Kevin Mitchell let off the Giants' half of the second, but Stewart struck him out on four pitches. Following him was Ken Obergfell, who flied out to Canseco in right. The shortstop Matt Williams was next, and on the third pitch of the at-bat, 
hit a drive to left. The score was A's 2, Giants 1. After giving up the home run, Stewart ended the inning on a Terry Kennedy strikeout. Ricky Henderson let off the third for the A's and smacked a line drive to left center for a stand-up double. Lansford followed and, after having to dodge another high and inside fastball from Geralt's, struck out on six pitches. Geralt's is headhunting here. Well, he's definitely pitching inside. He's 100%. When Lansford had to dive out of the way of this ball... <laughs> I'll we'll have to post a picture because it is such a such a just pose that he makes. He literally thrusts to I mean he doesn't have to, but he did. He throws his bat, a leg, his right leg like kicks out. He he's twisting away from the mound, throwing his bat behind him. It is a very interesting pose that he's making in this dodge of the high and inside pitch. Well, I can't blame Geralt's because all these A's hitters are leaning way over the plate. Gotta brush him off. Canseco was next at the plate, but after Henderson stole third, he fouled a ball off his foot that was ruled fair, and he was thrown out at first for the second out. Then it was McGuire, who hit a line drive right back at Geralt's that hit him in the gut, but he was able to recover the ball and make the third out. Ouch. Yeah, I definitely felt for Geralt's here. That looked really, real painful. I mean, he made the play, but... At what cost? At what cost? <laughs> One of my favorite things to do in video games is hit a line drive right back off the pitcher. It's always, yeah, because you don't have to feel bad because it's a video it's game. A video so game. who cares if you take this guy out? You know who I'd like to see get hit with a line drive? Kurt Schilling. Yeah, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't mind that. Well, the Giants right fielder, Pat Sheridan, let off the bottom of the third. He hit a soft bouncer to second for the first out. Then it was the pitcher, Geralt's, who struck out looking on four pitches. Yawn. Following him was Butler at the top of the order, but he hit a fly ball to center to end the inning. I mean, to be fair, most of the Giants lineup right now has been yawn. Yeah, that's true. Can't really blame the pitcher for that one. Yeah. <laughs> but I still will. Well, Dave Henderson let off the fourth inning, and after doubling off the top of the wall in the opening frame, he put just enough juice on it to get it over the fence. People have been fantastic. The whole area. There's a drive to deep right center field, and that one is gone. Dave Henderson this time hits it over after hitting the top of the fence. Do you think they the moved inning. the fence? I do. I, during it was the commercial like the same break. Spot. It was basically. Yeah, do you think they scooted the fence in I a little bit? I think they did. I think somebody went out there. <laughs> Some security guard or somebody who is an A's fan working at Candlestick <laughs> Park went and scooted it in just like two inches. A double agent. Here's yeah. my problem. My problem with the whole football field being used as a baseball field is that unless you've got some kind of behemoth ding-dong hitting monster, most home runs are are not going to be caught by the fans. There's this like huge gap in between that little makeshift fence and where the actual fans are sitting. They're just falling in the gap. Do you think anybody ever tried to bring a net that they could reach over down <laughs> like in there fishing and catch net? them? Yeah, like a big old fishing net. <laughs> I would. After Henderson's shot, it was A's three, Giants one. Steinbeck was next and grounded out to short. 
And then, before the broadcast was finished talking about Henderson's solo shot, Tony Phillips connected on a high fastball. This ballpark than any other part. And that one carries very well to right field, and that one is gone off the bat of Phillips. And the giant bullpen is busy. Just two pitches after Henderson's home run, Phillips had made it A's four, Giants one. With the Giants' bullpen already warming up, Roger Craig made the call to pull Geralt's, opting to give the ball to Kelly Downs. Geralt's had thrown 52 pitches over three and a third innings, allowing six hits, two home runs, four earned runs, and only striking out three. It's got to be rough. You probably think you're coming back, you start game one. Obviously, you still lose game one, but you think, all right, I get an extra long break, I get to come back, we're at home, I'm going to put on a show, and then this happens. <laughs> yeah, I do know I've heard pitchers talk before that some some of them don't like having extra long rest like that because that's true. they're creatures of habit like anybody, and then it throws them off their rhythm. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I would, I didn't hear anything about the Giants doing any, you know, workout type games during this. I think, um, you know, break. And I just wonder. Giants manager before the game actually mentioned that they had taken like a day or two off from doing anything because he said uh, after everything that had happened with the earthquake, he just didn't see any passion from the guys. Like they were distracted with, you know. Yeah. What well, I mean, that's fair. That's definitely fair. Yeah. Oh, I, I mean, I think, especially when you all oh, yeah. these guys live in San Francisco, their families. I that makes sense. That I don't people blame just them, but I wonder what not... effect that actually had on them in this game and in the series as a whole going forward. Well, the new pitcher Downs was four and eight on the year with a four point seven nine ERA in fifteen starts, and he got to work quickly, getting Weiss to ground out to first for the second out. Then, after a seven-pitch battle with Dave Stewart, got him to hit a soft liner to second for the third out. The pitcher Don't you say a, yawn, Charlie. This is the longest at bat. At bat. That's, <laughs> this is the longest at bat so far. Yeah, well, he, he gets my applause for that one. That's There we go. <laughs> that's pretty good. Robbie Thompson started out the bottom of the fourth, but struck out swinging on three pitches. Then it was Will Clark and Kevin Mitchell who hit back-to-back singles to get the Giants a runner in scoring position. Then Stewart walked Obergfell to load the bases, but struck out Matt Williams looking for the second out. With the bases still loaded, Terry Kennedy was next and hit a line drive up the middle. And it's lined in the center field for a base hit. Clark comes in to score. Here comes Mitchell. The throw is cut off at 4-3. The Giants were starting to inch their way back into it, with Clark and Mitchell scoring on Kennedy's base hit. It was A's four, Giants three. Sheridan was next and hit a sharp grounder to the first base side that looked like it would score another, but an impressive diving stop from McGuire and a close play at first brought about the third out. This is a great play by McGuire. Big Mac is not making that play, but Little Mac makes the play with room to spare. Completely lays out. It was, oh, it was a great play. Absolute web gem before they even had the web. (laughs) Pre-web. Web gem. Is web yeah. gem? Web gem is not. Is web gem about the web? I thought it was like the webbing of the glove. Oh, you're right. I maybe thought it was. So, maybe it's like a little right. double entendre thing, though. I always thought for some reason it was like because they're going to go post it on social media afterwards. Web gems is definitely before like it, social media. It's not. It's not yeah. I don't think it's before the internet, but it's before social media. I definitely think, yeah, it's 
because I think you're right, Sam, it does have to do with the glove, but I think that it's adopted a kind of second meaning. That makes way more sense. I mean, I feel like an idiot for thinking that it had to do with the <laughs> No, anime. no, I don't Charlie, think you, I no. really don't, I really don't think that that's, I don't know. Don't feel like an idiot because well, I think I mean, that's a very fine. fair assumption. Having a little egg on my face because I've totally there's webbing in the glove. Like the moment you say it, it's just like a dope moment, you know. Well, I'm gonna say, Charlie. I think you only deserve half an egg on your face. Okay. <laughs> if you had to have an Thanks. egg on your face, how would you want it cooked? Scrambled. I feel like it would kind yeah. of just fall off. Be would... the cleanest. Yeah. Anything else, and you're gonna get some runny yolk. Can I just have a hard-boiled yeah, egg <laughs> on my face, and then I can just take it off? Is that okay? <laughs> All right. Well, Ricky Henderson led off again in the fifth and walked on six pitches. Don't walk then, Ricky Henderson. Don't ever don't walk, walk Ricky Henderson. Because you know what? With Lansford at the plate, Ricky stole second, setting a new record for stolen bases in the postseason with 11 bags. He's so good at that. It's crazy. He's so good. I have to say, though, I was looking at Ricky Henderson's stats, and... uh. Obviously, yes, all-time base-stealing leader. But there's another stat he leads in. All-time caught-stealing leader. Well, Is Ricky Henderson bad, you guys? That's like Reggie I mean, Jackson is the all-time strikeout leader. Is but... Reggie Jackson bad, you guys? No. Yeah, no. No, Warner. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, right, Ricky it? Henderson, not bad. You guys have convinced me. Well, Lansford walked a few pitches later. Then, with Canseco at the plate and Ricky playing mind games at second, Downs served up a meatball, Canseco hammered to left. Drops down and it's drilled a deep left center field, and Jose Canseco on a 2-2 pick has hit it out. With Canseco's three-run bash, it was A7, Giants 3. McGuire was next, but struck out swinging on three pitches. Then it was Dave Henderson's turn at the plate, and he kept up his streak of hard-hit balls with a blast to left center field. Come back to hurt you, but especially in a lineup like this one. And there's another towering drive to deep center field. Butler goes back, and Henderson has hit his second home run. With another solo shot from Henderson, he became the sixth player in World Series history to hit home runs in two consecutive innings, joining the likes of Babe Ruth and Reggie Jackson. The score was A's 8, Giants 3. Oof, this is getting away from the the hometown Giants here. After giving up the two home runs and allowing four runs, Downs was pulled in favor of Jeff Brantley, who was 7-1 with a 4.07 ERA in 59 games. With the pitcher spot set to lead off the Giants' half of the inning, Roger Craig made a double switch, putting Candy Maldonado in at right field, replacing Pat Sheridan. Some of the names in this game. Candy (laughs) Maldonado. Great name. That is a great name. Brantley's first batter was Steinbach, and he walked him on six pitches. Then, with Phillips batting, Brantley balked, which sent Steinbach to second. I'm not going to talk about box. <laughs> I don't fucking want to talk about box. Move on. Nobody knows. Nobody knows what it is. He did a little flinch. Umpire called it. Whatever. It's fine. Good analysis, Charlie. Thank you. <laughs> Well, the Bach wouldn't prove to be an issue, as Brantley struck out Phillips two pitches later, then got Walt Weiss to ground out for the third out. The bottom of the fifth saw Candy Maldonado's first at bat against Dave Stewart, but he grounded out to second on the first pitch. Then it was Brett Butler again, who flied out to center, followed by Robbie Thompson, who hit a short fly ball to left that was caught by a sprinting Ricky Henderson to end the inning. 
This was a great play, too, by Ricky. I think his speed on the bases is something you'll just think about, but that's a huge asset in the field, too. Yeah, makes it a, makes a nice basket catch as he's sprinting in for the ball. Having worked through five innings with relative ease, Stewart stayed in the game to lead off the A's sixth. After a three-pitch at bat, he hit a pop fly to shallow right that was caught by the second baseman, Thompson. Ricky was next and hit the second pitch to third for a quick ground out, then it was Carney Lansford. In the entire 1989 season, Lansford had only hit two home runs, but on the first pitch he saw from Jeff Brantley, he lifted it high and deep to now left. Now Lansford hits it in the air to left field and deep, and going back is Mitchell, and that one is gone! Lansford's homer put the A's up 9-3, to and tied a record for most home runs in a World Series game for a single team with five. Jose Canseco was next and followed Lansford's two-out blast with a deep fly ball of his own that looked like it might clear the fence, but was caught on the warning track by Kevin Mitchell for the third out. See, now I think uh, a Giants security guard noticed that the wall got pushed in, (laughs) pulled it back out. That's what I'm saying. It's just... It's mayhem out there with these walls and there's, candlestick there's park. There's something, something spooky going on in the outfield. Will Clark started off the bottom of the sixth and popped up to short for the first out. Kevin Mitchell followed with a fly ball to right for the second out. Then, after Ken Oberg fell single to right, Matt Williams hit a fly ball to center that got Dave Stewart through another clean inning of work. He has been so good. He's been very good. Working really fast. All the hitters on each team are swinging freely so this game has just rolled right along well the top of the seventh rolled around and mark mcguire let it off with a six pitch walk then it was dave henderson but he hit a grounder to third the giants sent around the horn for a double play it was the first time all night dave henderson hadn't reached base following the double play steinbach hit another grounder to Obrickfell at third but the ball snuck under his glove and through his legs resulting in an error as steinbach reached safely poor obi He's having a rough day. They'd said he'd been a pinch hitter for most of the year. He hadn't started one of these World Series games yet, but they put him in the lineup hoping to get some pop out of his bat. Now this. Bit of a rough day. (laughs) With a runner on, Tony Phillips was next, but he grounded out to second for the third out. After the stretch, Terry Kennedy led off for the Giants and popped up Stewart's first pitch for an easy out from Lansford. Ernie Riles got the call to pinch hit for Jeff Brantley, and he hit a deep fly ball to center, but Henderson had room to make the catch for the second out. Candy Maldonado got another chance at the plate, but he struck out swinging after a seven-pitch at bat to end the inning. The Giants sent a new pitcher, Atlee Hamaker, to the mound for the top of the eighth. In 28 games, Hamaker was 6-6 with a 3.76 ERA and had pitched in Game 1 of the World Series, striking out two in one and two-thirds innings of work. This is another great name. Atley Hamaker. Atley Hamaker. <laughs> the A's got off to a quick start, with Walt Weiss singling to third on a high bouncing ball. With the pitcher spot up next, the only rookie on the A's roster, Lance Blankenship, was called in to pinch hit for Dave Stewart. Stewart's final line for the night was 86 pitches through seven innings, allowing five hits and three runs, while walking one and striking out eight. I think he could have pitched a little longer. Yeah, I mean, he probably could have. Um, I mean, also, you're up 9-3. to three. It's yeah. not like you really need the insurance runs right now. I don't know. I think he probably could have stuck around. Not that I wanted to watch him bat again, but I wanted <laughs> to watch him keep pitching. He was really good. Yeah, exactly. On the fourth pitch of the at-bat, 
Blankenship ripped one up the middle for a base hit, bringing Ricky Henderson to the plate. Henderson smacked a fly ball to center for the first out, but Weiss tagged up to get runners on the corners for Lansford. One pitch later, Lansford hit a chopper to the third base side that got through for a base hit, scoring Weiss. The left fielder, Mitchell, bobbled the ball in the outfield, which allowed Lansford to advance to second and Blankenship to score as well, bringing the score to A's 11, Giants 3. Well, maybe it was a good strategy move to bring (laughs) in the pinch hitter and just kind of close this one out. Canseco was next and hit another early chopper to short that he managed to leg out for an infield single, while Lansford moved up another 90 feet. The A's are up 11-3 here. He has no reason to do this, but Canseco legs the fuck out of this one and gets there. That's impressive. Yeah, he was really fast. I did not remember him being a burner down the line, but he really 40-40. did on this play. I wonder if Canseco and Ricky like raced at this time, like who would win? I don't know. It, it would probably be close. I'm sure it would be a close close race. Probably Ricky, though. I mean, Canseco was on a lot of HGH, and I don't think, I don't <laughs> think Ricky was. Well. <laughs> well, next was Mark McGuire, and he hit a grounder back to the pitcher that ricocheted off his glove and bounced to the second baseman, who went to first for the out. But Lansford had scored on the play, making it A's 12, Giants 3. The next batter, Dave Henderson, took a pitch off the shoulder, putting him on first. Well, Terry Steinbach followed up the hit-by-pitch by knocking in Canseco with a line drive to left field, bringing the score to A's 13, Giants 3. Finally, after giving up four runs, Hammaker got the hook and was replaced by Craig Lefferts. Lefferts was 2-4 and four with a 2.69 ERA in 70 games, but right now all the Giants needed was for him to stop the bleeding. Why wasn't this guy and... in earlier? A 2.69 <laughs> ERA? I mean... <laughs> They brought in a guy with a four-plus ERA when the game was kind of close. Yeah, now at this point, I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? Well, on the fourth pitch to Tony Phillips, Lefferts got him to sky one to center for the third out. The A's sent reliever Rick Honeycutt in for the bottom of the eighth while also making a few other defensive swaps. Rick Honeycutt. What a great name. Great name. (laughs) Blankenship stayed in the game at second, Will Phillips moved to third, replacing Carney Lansford, and Stan Javier came into the game in right, replacing Jose Canseco. I think Stan Javier is a great name, too. Yeah. <laughs> that seems like the two names that don't go together. I love it. He's a two-first-names kind of guy. Yeah. The Giants had the top of the order due and sent in Donald Nixon to pinch hit for Brett Butler. He took Honeycutt's first pitch to short for a quick first out. Then it was Greg Litton pinch hitting for Robbie Thompson, and he singled to center on a bouncing ball that just got past Weiss's glove. The rest of the inning went quickly for Honeycutt as he struck out Will Clark, then got Kevin Mitchell to ground into a fielder's choice for the final out of the inning. With the final inning approaching, the Giants made some defensive swaps of their own, keeping Nixon and Litton in the game at center and second, and sending Kurt Manwaring in to catch for Craig Lefferts. Weird name. Kurt Manwaring. That's an interesting name. Kurt with an I. Yeah. Yes, with an I. How do you feel about that, Warner? Uh, it's. I mean, it's a. It's a little weird. But is that Kurt Manwaring? You're in the Oget Hall of Shame. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa! <laughs> no, too no, much? no, no, too much. <laughs> That's the thing. His full name is Kurt. It's not like his name is Curtis with a K, and then he spelt it with an I. Like he was given that name, K A R K I R T. So I don't hold that against him. It's just when people have a name like William Myers 
and then decide that their nickname is going to be W-I-L, Will. So if he That's... added another T to the end of his name, and it was K-I-R-T-T. Yeah, I'd be like, that's very odd that he did that. Okay. <laughs> well, Walt Weiss let off the inning for the A's, and he popped one up to shallow right that was caught by Litton. Blankenship was next and reached again on a weak ground ball to first. The pitcher tried to field but overran. Ricky Henderson followed and hit a line drive to left that Mitchell caught for the second out. The last batter for the A's was Mike Gallego, who pinch hit for Rick Honeycutt, and he flied out to right field on the fourth pitch. Pitching for the A's in the bottom of the ninth was Gene Nelson. Not very interesting name. No, not very interesting. Nelson started off the inning by walking Ken Obergfell on five pitches, then got Matt Williams to fly out to center for the first out. The next batter, Manwaring, hit a blooper to right field that dropped in just under Stan Javier's glove and resulted in a double, with Obergfell advancing to third. With the pitcher spot due up, the Giants sent pinch hitter Bill Baith to the plate for his first World Series at bat. And then, on the second pitch, he connected on a fastball that was right down the middle. There's a high drive to deep left field. Tony Phillips goes all the way back, and that one is gone. The score was now A's 13, Giants 6. Baith's ninth inning home run set a new record for home runs in a World Series game with seven. With the next batter, Candy Maldonado at the plate, the the lights in right center field went out. But it wouldn't prove to be an issue as they elected to keep the game going while the remaining Giants faithful broke out their flashlights trying to give a bit of hope to the rallying home team. I do wonder if there wasn't the earthquake just, you know, a week and a half prior if all those fans would have had flashlights. Yeah, I probably not. I think people had those because they were worried there were, might be aftershocks and now right. they're at the game and they're like, hey, let's start flashing the lights out here. I don't think that it's really the best plan <laughs> as a fan to be shining lights into your team's face when they're yeah, trying especially, to come back. Especially when they're in right center field, yeah. you know, not that high above the batter's eye. <laughs> What's interesting is that you know, a few decades later, when the San Francisco 49ers were in the Super Bowl, the lights went out in the Super Bowl stadium. Interesting. San Francisco, get your uh, lighting grids Well, together that wasn't in San teams. Francisco, but oh, that's true. a team. But, well, anyways. <laughs> well, Mod- well, Maldonado would strike out on five pitches for the second out. Then Donald Nixon grounded one to center, knocking Gene Nelson out of the game. The A's replaced him with Todd Burns, who was 6-5 and five on the season with a 2.24 ERA and 8 saves in 50 games. Burns' first batter was Greg Litton, who got ahead early, then hit a double to left. And that's grounded fair down the left field line and into the corner. Nixon heading toward third. Phillips tracking it down in foul territory. Nixon around third. He'll come in to score on a double by Litton. After driving in Nixon, Litton had made it A's 13, Giants 7. Shit, man, they're putting together something here. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Will Clark followed and walked on four pitches. Uh-oh. Then, with Dennis Eckersley warming up in the bullpen, the Giants' last hope of the night, Kevin Mitchell, stepped up to the plate. They got the Eck warming up. They got the MVP at the plate. This is actually kind of turning into something interesting. As the lights in right center field began to flick back to life, the MVP Mitchell tried to keep the rally going. 
He took a ball, swung and missed, then fouled one off before finally connecting on the fourth pitch, sending it right towards the new left fielder, Tony Phillips, who caught it for the final out of the game, leaving the A's one win away from sweeping the World Series. Well, it was a valiant effort to get themselves back into at least a respectable score. Yeah, considering they'd only scored one run in the series prior to this, this was pretty good from them. This one inning alone, they scored, (laughs) what, six times the runs they'd scored in the first two games? Right. (laughs) Pretty good, pretty good. (laughs) But the A's would finish the job the following night, sweeping the San Francisco Giants in four games to win the 1989 World Series, their first championship since 1974. Dave Stewart would come away with his fourth win of the postseason, making him the first pitcher in MLB history to notch two wins in the, in the ALCS and two wins in the World Series. He would be named the World Series MVP for his efforts and place second in Cy Young voting. Good guy, Dave Stewart. Great player. I all hope around. he can find his way into the Hall of Fame at some point through some means. That'd be cool. I, we talked earlier really cool. outside of the podcast that we could see him being kind of a Harold Baines type guy just getting in because people seem to like him. Yeah, and I would feel good about Dave Stewart getting that Harold Baines treatment. Well, what if we induct Dave Stewart into the OGAT Hall of Fame? Yeah, I'm good with that. Oh, yeah. The A's would return to the World Series in 1990. OGAT Hall of Fame. That's the music. The A's would return to the World Series in 1990 following a 103-win Ricky Henderson MVP season, but would find themselves swept by the Cincinnati Reds. It was their last appearance in the World Series to date. The Giants, meanwhile, wouldn't return to the World Series until 2002, where they lost in seven games to the Angels, then again in 2010, which started off a run of even-year magic that saw the Giants win three championships in five years. The A's had been an unparalleled force in the 1989 World Series, outscoring the Giants 32-14. Throughout the entire four-game series, the Giants never held a lead over the A's and only ended two innings tied with them. That's insane. I mean, that, a sweep is yeah. one thing, but holy shit. Very um, impressive that the A's just completely... Never had the lead and were hardly even tied. Yeah, I mean, one of the times that they were tied was just because the A's didn't score in the right. first inning. Yeah, I was just going to ask, like, how many of those yeah. were just 0-0? Zero, zero? Yeah, it was 0-0, zero, zero, I think, in maybe game two at the start. And then the A's scored, and then the Giants later ended up tying it up. It was like 1-1. One to one. But other than that, yeah. <laughs> Dominant. Well, it might be tempting to think of this World Series as a boring, lopsided event that's only memorable because of the earthquake that kicked off Game 3, there's so much that makes this an all-time great World Series. The outstanding performances from Dave Stewart and Mike Moore as they combined to start all four games, the Bash brothers at the peak of their existence, an amazing showing from the greatest of all time, Ricky Henderson, and a home-run record that would stand for almost 30 years. The earthquake may have overshadowed much of what happened in the Bay Area during the fall of 1989, but through it all, baseball was still putting on an amazing show one game at a time. All right. Well, what do you guys say we move on to Faces in the Crowd? Yeah, this should be a good one. I'm 
kind of yeah, shocked so about this. Faces actually. in yeah. the crowd. Oh, I hear a theme song. Faces in the crowd. Faces in the crowd. Faces in the crowd. Country remix. Faces All right, in so the crowd. Faces in the crowd is our faces segment every week where we do some interviews. We talk to some people that were either at the game or uh, had something to do with it. And yeah, guys, this is really exciting. For the first time in 20 years, we've got the Bash Brothers on the phone together. No so way. So give me one sec. No way. Yep, get, I'm going to dial right now. I have the number for the Bash Brothers. I'm, uh, I'm I don't, like, I, I've got I think they've I'm been so conferenced nervous. in. I can't believe this. Um, so, you know, you might have to give me a sec. If we get if we get Mark first, then we have to get Jose. Like, just give me a sec. Uh, I'm going to dial right now. Bash Brothers Auto and Collision Repair. How can I help you? Hello? Wait, um, Are you there? Wait. Oh, I'm sorry. Bash wait, Brothers, who? right? Yeah, Bash Brothers yeah. Auto and Collision Repair. How can I help you? Oh, oh no. Oh, no, Charlie. I think this is yeah, the wrong number. Just roll that tire. Roll that over there. Yeah, get that out of the area. I got Are you, I mean, in. are you sure? Oh, is, is Mark there? A Mark? I don't know Mark. We got a Mike. You guys want to talk to Mike? Uh, uh well... Uh, no, I mean, Charlie, we were hoping to, I mean, maybe, maybe we could try to see if we could call Jose. Maybe, maybe we, we got could two find Jose's, but they're a little busy. They're working on the transmission for a 98 Camry. If you want oh, them to man. look at your vehicle, I can maybe get them later or tomorrow. But right now they're a little, uh, they're a little busy with that one. How does this keep, ha- I thought this was going to be an interview with Mark McGuire and Jose Canseco. Come on. I was really pumped. I mean, I was really going to ask Mark if... Pumped? You guys need your tires pumped up? I can pump your tires up if you need it. Just bring it on no. in. We got a... We were looking up for pump... We were looking for pumped up baseball players, not pumped up tires. Got... If your oh, vehicle sh- got hit by a baseball or a baseball bat, we can fix that right up. We do smashes. No, we do crashes. No, no. We're Yeah, we're talking about like smashing dingers, not... Oh, yeah. We do dings. We do dents, bumps, fender oh. benders, all that kind of stuff. Broken headlights, broken tailgates... Whatever you need, you bring it in. We can get to it. Like I said, Jose, the Jose's are busy with the Camry, but as soon as they're done, they're the best guys in town. Oh, I think we're just going to have to scratch this interview, Warner. Oh, you got a scratch on your bumper? You got a scratch on your windshield? Anything you got, you bring the okay, scratch. Okay, this is a we'll shot in the dark, right but you said, you said there's a mic there? Any chance that mic was at the 1989 World Series in San Francisco? Hey, Mike. Game three? Mike, I got someone on the phone asking where you were in 1989. Oh, wait. Oh, where are you going? Oh, he's running. He's running. Oh. Why are you? Where? Okay. Well, Mike's Mike's gone. I don't know what happened oh. there. Okay. Um, well. well, I guess this is not the Bash Brothers. Uh, we're really sorry, everybody. No, this is Bash Brothers Auto and Collision Repair. How many times I got to tell you, buddy? This is some kind no, of Crank Yankers y- prank show? Yeah, we're just uh, we're crank calling you, man. I'm sorry. You got uh, yep. Ashton Kutner around there trying to trying to prank me yep you're getting pranked oh, man oh, 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 i knew it jose jose come on we're gonna okay. be pranked we're charlie prank i think show. i'm just gonna hang up yeah I think, just, I think i'm just gonna hang up sorry sorry everyone okay sorry guys uh well Warner, where did you get that um, number well her, i don't know our producer was like hey guys we got the bash brothers all right yeah we got the final, but say can say wasn't the go. episode for that producer we need a new one this is ridiculous yeah. We'll get into it. I'd we'll give him another chance. Don't fire him right away. I mean, All right. Well, mark my words, producer man. Okay. This is it. Charlie, Charlie, we're going to cool off. All right. We're going to cool off. 
Uh, we're going like to just focus on the next segment. I'm feeling like Insaco. Right. Got me all riled yeah, up. We're, uh, okay. we're just, we're just going to focus on the next segment. All right? All okay? Right. Okay. All right. Well, this week for Extra Innings, uh, we have something a little different. Uh, we're not playing a game or doing a draft today, but we're going to be doing something that I think you guys are going to like. So allow one game at a time to present a tale of two zoos, resentment, anger, and death from opposite sides of the bay, as told by the internet reviewers of the San Francisco and Oakland zoos. Sam, take it away. Thank you for that lovely intro, Warner. Uh, gave me chills, honestly. And I'm excited to kind of present this story to our listeners. It's not a story of sport. It's not a story of athletic achievement or even physical battle, but it is a story of a war. A war that's going on between two dueling cities. The two dueling cities we spoke about for this entire podcast. San Francisco and Oakland. Two cities that both have official city zoos. And there's been a lot of debate amongst these two cities that normally have a very cordial relationship, but when it comes to the zoos, it is nothing of the sort. So, we're going to walk through using some reviews we found online, some message board posts, some Reddit comments, and we're going to show our audience just how much these two zoo-loving cities hate each other's enclosures. First, I want to talk about the minority, and the minority here is people who believe that San Francisco has a better zoo than Oakland. I found a lot more people online that seem to think that Oaktown has the better zoo than their neighbors across the bay. But someone who thinks that San Francisco has a better zoo is the Quora user Anthony Brown. Let me give you a little sampling of what Anthony Brown had to say in his Quora post. Warner, you want to read this first one? If you're looking for penguins, the San Francisco Zoo is better. If you want to gauge common collection animals, then the San Francisco Zoo's lemur exhibit is enormous compared to Oakland's. From Quora user Anthony Brown, I like penguins. Who better to trust about penguins than Quora user Anthony Brown, comma, I like penguins. And he's telling us that the best penguins in the Bay are at the San Francisco Zoo. Also, the lemur exhibit is far superior to Oakland's. But how about a little rebuttal from the Oakland is better than San Francisco people? Charlie, maybe you could tell us what Yelp user Mrs. G had to say. The San Fran Zoo is absolutely depressing. I need hard liquor after leaving. Whoa! That is <laughs> intense. What? Who goes to the zoo and is like, this is so bad, I have to go get drunk. I think they're an alcoholic anyway. I think they're just making an excuse. It feels like they're projecting. Warner, maybe you could give us a... A clapback, as you will, from the San Francisco Zoo. San Francisco Zoo is almost a real city zoo. Oakland Zoo is a town zoo. That's written by NorCal Dude on the forum citydata.com. One would think NorCal Dude knows what he's talking about. I've got to say, that's almost kind of like underhanded diss to the San Fran Zoo, though. It's almost a real city. It's almost, it's a, real almost city. a real city zoo. Almost. So I don't know exactly what NorCal dude is trying to say here, but it sounds like he is at least saying Oakland Zoo is not as good. Well, Oakland Oakland Zoo is a town zoo. Nothing. You don't want to be described as a town anything, let alone a town zoo. 
Charlie, can you tell us maybe something from Oakland's point of view? In almost every conceivable way, the Oakland Zoo is the superior zoo. Unless you want to see depressed animals socked in by fog, I don't know why anyone would ever want to visit the San Francisco Zoo. And that was CityData.com user 04KL4ND. Oh, I hear they know what they're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds reliable. The amount of hate behind that comment, I could just feel it. Unless you want to see depressed animals socked in by fog. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of zoo hate on these forums related to the zoos. I got to be honest. And the truth is, we're done with San Francisco being better than Oakland. The rest of these are all Oakland better than San Francisco. Warner, how about you read another one from Yelp Crusader, Charlene M. Okay, this is one of my favorites. Charlene M. says, refuse to support zoos. But I hear the Oakland one is the one. <laughs> She's against they zoos still, entirely, can... but... If she does have, she does have to get her two cents in here by telling us the Oakland one is the one. <laughs> Just in case, you know, in case we weren't sure, maybe give her a nice little, you know, oh, thanks, Charlene. True, but Yelp also Crusader. Yelp Crusader. Uh, Charlie, how about you read another uh, negative San Francisco comment? I haven't been able to make myself okay with visiting the San Francisco Zoo since the tiger incident. Last I went, there were a lot of empty habitats, and it was pretty disappointing. Oakland Zoo is smaller, but fun and accessible. And they have the ride that takes you in the air over the zoo to check out the bison and see most of the zoo from way up. That was cool. That was Yelp wow. user Rebecca M. But I'm sorry, can you read that first sentence again? Yeah. Um, I haven't been able to make myself okay with visiting the San Francisco Zoo since the tiger incident. Okay, Uh-oh. that's a little ominous. Yeah, a maybe, tiger incident, huh? Maybe another comment here from Quora user Fred Landis. Comma, investigative reporter could maybe help us out a little bit? Uh, yeah, okay, okay. Here's what Fred has to say. A tiger jumped out of its enclosure at the San Francisco Zoo and killed a Brazilian oh tourist. Oh my god. There, there was a long distance and time between the tiger becoming free and the place where the tourist was killed. Should I... I'm just going to add on what Fred also felt like including. I have seen zoos in the third world that are better designed and take better care of animals than the San Francisco Zoo. The two things that are not up to San Francisco standards are the zoo, all caps, and the local newspapers. Oh, wow. Kind of surprising. I mean, you didn't really have to come at the local newspapers like that. I mean, core user Fred Landis, comma, investigative reporter. Well, he's an investigative reporter. Maybe he has some beef with the papers over something that they did to him personally. Yeah, that sounds personal for sure. But I am a little <laughs> concerned with... The last two comments both seem to reference this tiger incident and a Brazilian tourist being killed. So I did dig a little deeper into this. And I went and I found that the San Francisco Zoo has had two separate tiger attack incidents. One taking place in 2006 Jeez. and then the next place taking place the next year in 2007. Oh both of them involved a female Siberian tiger named Tatiana. Both with the same tiger? Both with the same tiger. In the first oh incident, God. a zookeeper was bitten on the arm during a public feeding. That seems like, okay, maybe that happens. Zookeepers getting bit. Seems like it might be part of the job. Something that just happens a lot. I, I don't know. I'm not a zoo expert, but that, that doesn't blow my mind anyway. But the second incident, a person was killed and two others were injured before, sadly, the police had to come and shoot the tiger down, Tatiana. But the second attack happened on Christmas Day. 2007 when tatiana escaped from her open air enclosure she very sadly killed a tourist injured the tourist brothers 
she clocked them down 300 feet away to the zoo cafe. Yeah, uh, San Francisco, that's not looking good for them. I gotta be honest. I don't ever want to visit the San Francisco Zoo. Jesus Christ. I don't, th- I don't think I do either. That leads us, we actually have another category. The both zoos are bad category. <laughs> this sounds like it might be my category. I feel like I honest. might be in this category too as well. How about, Charlie, could you tell us what Yelp user Mike N had to say? The Oakland Zoo is run down. Everything's really outdated. The San Francisco Zoo is a slight step above Oakland, but both are pretty bad. And Char- and Warner, if you could tell us what Redditor Most Pallone 4 had to say about the situation. Yeah, so Most Pallone 4 said, San Francisco and Oakland Zoo both close at 4 p.m., even on weekends. What a fucking joke. L.A. and San Diego zoos are open till 7 or 8. What gives? Oh, well, okay, I guess that just has to do with the times that the zoo is open? Uh... Um, yeah, uh, that, I mean, that's kind of an interesting, uh, Who thing wants to go to with the that. zoo at 7 p.m. anyway? Yeah, all the animals are asleep. Yeah. Wait, real quick, can I just, before we move on, the, the LA Zoo closes at 5 p.m. every day. <laughs> I don't know what this guy's going on about, Reddit but... Po- most Pallone? Come on the pod. Defend yourself. Defend yourself, yourself, Most Pallone, but until then, you're in the Oget Hall of Shame for spreading false information online. Yeah, we're not... Yes. Not supporters of fake news on this pod. But something Most Pallone had to say, which is interesting, is he brought up the San Diego Zoo, which, look, they're not really in the running here. They're not really part of this conversation. We're talking about Northern California Bay Area zoos. San Diego is way down in Southern California, yet the thing is almost every forum, every board, every comment section I went on, people were bringing up the San Diego Zoo. Here. This is interesting. Take Tisha G from London. London England, all the way from the UK. Take her, for example. Warner, tell me what Tisha G had to say. So Tisha G says, neither. They're both horrible, and their treatment of the animals is even worse. San Diego Zoo is my recommendation for a good experience in a very humane setting. They take really good care of all the animals there, which personally makes me feel better when I pay for admission. I think that's a great thing to say. I'm happy you feel good about that. Yeah, Tisha's not wrong. But San Diego's not part of the fucking conversation. The original post was... Which zoo is better, San Francisco or Oakland? Neither. They're both horrible. San Diego is better. Is San Diego's better? Yeah, that doesn't I, answer the question. I have to say, the person asking this on, I'm pretty sure, Yelp, was wondering, I can only assume they were in the Bay Area, had time to go to one zoo, and didn't know which one to go to. And then Tisha G shows up from London and says, go down to San Diego. <laughs> that was Australian. That's Australian. <laughs> <laughs> it was a she little says, beetle. Uh, There's a little beetle in there, I think. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, yeah, that was a little Liverpudlian. Uh, anyways, she says, go down to San Diego, as if this family, I'm assuming, can just hop in the car for with their Bay Area vacation and drive what, eight, nine, ten hours to get to San Diego for a zoo day? Tisha, delete your account. Okay, another one that shouts out the San Diego Zoo is from Yelp K. Their name was Yelp K, okay? Uh, Charlie, how about you read that one for us? San Francisco Zoo definitely sucks. Obviously, San Diego is better, but also, while not as good as the San Diego Zoo, the LA Zoo kills the San Francisco Zoo. What amazed me about the San Francisco Zoo is how San Francisco has the reputation of being the hippie city, but their animals looked horribly miserable. Okay, so now not only is Yelp K bringing in San Diego, they're also bringing in another city that doesn't matter, L.A. We don't care about SoCal zoos. We're trying to figure out the best Bay Area zoo. Also, I'm 
I'm starting to really feel bad for these animals at the San Francisco Zoo. Yeah. <laughs> I gotta be it's, honest, I feel really it's bad. It's starting for to them. make sense here. It's all clicking why that tiger needed to get the fuck out of there. I mean, yeah. From um, reading this, I'm in the both are bad. Maybe I want to go visit the San Diego Zoo now, honestly. But I don't want. I'm in the 100% go to San Diego Zoo camp. I don't want to see. I guess I agree with Tisha. I don't want to go to either of these zoos because these message boards, these posts are just bumming me out. And you know, the last one I'm going to leave you with. I'm honestly not sure where it stands on, in terms of which group this person falls into. But it definitely makes me not want to go to the zoo. Warner, can you just read this one from Yelp user Gabe F? Yeah, so Gabe F says, Watch out for a certain shit-throwing baboon at the Oakland Zoo. He's my enemy. (laughs) All right, thanks for listening, everybody. That was a tale of two zoos. All right, well, we hope you guys enjoyed uh, our little deep dive into the zoos of the Bay Area. Um, If you guys have any uh, thoughts about these zoos, please let us know, social media, email, uh, all that stuff. We want to say thanks for listening. Uh, Shout out to Mike for suggesting this episode. Uh, He emailed in. You can email us at ogatpod at gmail.com. Uh, if you have any suggestions for games, we might do them on the show like we did this one. Uh, you can also let us know if you were at these games or you have anything to say about them. That's always fun for us to hear. We've got new episodes every Tuesday. Uh, if you enjoyed the show, make sure you tell your friends about us. We're on all the podcast platforms. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review, especially on Apple. That really helps the show, uh, helps us get out there to more people. Uh, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at OGATPod. We like to, you know, post images from the show, uh, post memes and stuff. Uh, and also, yeah, if you have anything to say, you can reach out to us there. We have we a TikTok now too, don't we, Sam? Oh, yeah. I'd be TikToking every day now. So check out TikTok to see Sam getting up to some fun. Some, yeah, some, some TikTok stuff. <laughs> and also, finally, we're on Patreon too. So check that out if you want to support the and show. And Warner, you're uh, we'll using shout that out. Patreon money to fund your time machine, which in turn you're using to go back and bet on sporting events that you already know the outcomes to. Yes, I'm trying to pull a back to the future on it and uh, make some real money so we don't need a Patreon anymore. In the meantime, just, uh, yeah, check us out on there. Uh, We've got a bunch of different tiers and rewards and things like that, and we'll also shout out uh, new supporters uh, at the end of our episode. So, yeah, thank you, everybody, for listening, and we will see you all next week. Bye. Bye. This draw is crazy.